Thank you so much for everybody coming out. I'd like to just quickly do a little introduction about this event because uh, it was three years ago around this time that I moved to D.C. and within that first month of being here, I talked to a lot of people uh, that I wanted to do some type of effort or panel or event for veterans. And then a year ago this time, we did our first fireside chat three floors down with about 15 people. And tonight, we have close to 30, 35 people. And so I'm really excited to see this vision come true. The people, uh, the panelists and the veterans that we have for you come very, very highly recommended. Some of you are here because of them. And uh, I can't wait to sit down and interview them. What I'd really like to start out talking about is the reason the initiative was born to begin with is, uh, you know, for about eight years, I worked with college students. And I was very frustrated to see thriving student leaders go from uh, successful student leaders to then hating their life and not figuring out what they want to do in their 20s, not taking risks and not figuring out what to do. And a lot of that rests because we only really get a chance to tell our story on a one or two page black and white resume. And it's very tough to figure out how do we sell ourselves. Uh, there's a lot of jobs out there, especially here in a major city, but a lot of those jobs are uninspiring, right? It's like, what are we applying to? What do we get ourselves into? And so my hope with the niche movement, as well as with this event and the panelists that I've selected, is to inspire and empower a lot of you to take risks, take action, figure out there's a new way out there to find your calling and to find not only a job or a career that you love, but a company that not only appreciates your background, but if you feel inspired that you want to go to and make a difference in. And that's what we're going to do tonight. And so for the next 20, 30, 40 minutes, we're going to interview the four panelists. And I really want to turn over to you guys because I think some of you have a lot of great questions that can be answered here tonight. And we'll leave here with a little bit more mingling, drinking, and eating food. So thank you again for coming out. And for those of you that were uh, in the military or veterans, thank you so much for your service. Uh, so without further ado, we'll get it going here. And our first one up here is Lourdes Tiglow. And she is uh, part of, uh, she was from the Air Force. And she currently works for Team Rubicon Global. So give it up for Lourdes. Our next panelist that, again, through a friend of a friend and through a recommendation, I got connected to through LinkedIn. I met him at GW a couple weeks ago, and he just blew my mind how uh, open, honest, and, and willing he was to help out. This is Scott Cooper, and he was uh, in the Marine Corps, and he currently works for Human Rights First. Thank you, Scott, for being here. Um, this, this other gentleman, he was in the Army, and I can't give you a, a sure title because he's, in, he's doing so many different things here in D.C. He's calling himself a politician, but I know he's written a couple books that are published. He's also got his own LLC. So without further ado, we have Terrence Sims. He's coming up. And uh, last but not least, this is a, a good friend of mine. Uh, my wife and I moved down here three years ago, not knowing many people, and through another couple, we met a few people, and one of them was Joanne Cizek, and she is from the Marine Corps, and currently works for Mission Continues, which is a great organization that we'll talk about tonight. Joanne, thank you so much for being here. Alright, so technical difficulties aside, uh, we have my camera, uh, my wife is helping out with cameras, we had a little technical difficulties with my videographer, which I'm not going to get into, and then WeWork, this is the first time we're holding a traditional panel, and so I have to turn my mic off to get theirs to talk, to talk. so if, if we trip up with this the first five minutes, just bear with us. Alright, um, so what I would like to do is, just like any panel, is we'll start with you, Joanna. Um, feel free to share anything about your background, where you're from, uh, what, when, and where you got into the military, why you got into the military, and, and just a little taste of what you're doing now, and then we can move down the line. You're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody, for coming out um, this evening to come here and speak. Hopefully, we'll be able to share some interesting tidbits about our transition, not only from the military, but to our civilian sector. Um, as Kevin said, my name is Joanna Cizak. I'm from Chicago originally. Um, I did ROTC at Purdue University, so that's Reserve Officer Training Corps. I um, did that for four years and then commissioned to the Marine Corps in 2008. Um, what drove me to go into the Marine Corps was my parents were born in Poland, and they came to America like most immigrants do for the American dream. And just being so grateful for the opportunities that they had um, kind of drove me to serve. And I've always had this inherent desire to serve not only my community through a bunch of community service projects through um, junior high and then ultimately high school. So when it came time to look at colleges, I knew one of the reasons, one of the ways I would get it paid is through ROTC. So I applied for a scholarship, ended up getting a Marine scholarship through Navy ROTC, 
did my four years at Purdue, um, commissioned in 2008, like I said, as a Marine Corps military police officer. Um, from there, I went to Okinawa, Japan as my first duty station. So 21 years old, showing up in Okinawa, Japan. <laughs> um, quite a transition for me. Um, I've traveled a little bit, never internationally away from, from my family like that. Um, spent two years in Okinawa, Japan. Did traditional military police stuff. Um, was the officer in charge of a military police district and then transitioned over to our companies and did a lot of force protection and stuff. So being in Japan, we would have exercises in different countries and going before that, making sure that all the threat vulnerability security assessments are done. So when we have folks go overseas, we know that they're, they're gonna be safe. So I did that um, for about two years, then moved back to Southern California. I was lucky enough to get back to um, Camp Miramar. So I spent some time at MCAS Miramar as the um, company commander for a military police company and we provided airfield security for a lot of the squadrons going on deployment. And I was lucky enough to transition from there to a Marine Expeditionary Unit. So we sent out 2,500 Marines and sailors amongst three ships to the Middle East. And I was the force protection officer, so I got to travel a lot within nine months, um, doing all the threat vulnerability security assessments, working with NCIS, State Department, and other intelligence agencies to make sure, once again, where our Marines and sailors were going was safe. Um, and if not, coming up with contingency plans to potentially get them out of that area if something did happen. Um, did that for about three years and I transitioned from the Marine Corps in 2015 and was able to get a job with Oracle, so one of the world's largest tech companies. So I can explain a little bit later as we're on this panel about how I went from having degrees in criminal justice to working for the world's largest mm -hmm. tech company. Um, did that as a project portfolio management um, consultant for about two years and now I work at The Mission Continues a veteran service organization nonprofit, and our mission is to um, inspire veterans to continue serving um, once they got back to duty. And we, we do that within their communities and ultimately want to inspire future generations to serve. So I've been in my current role as a Salesforce administrator for about three months now. So relatively new, but I've been volunteering with the organization for about two years. Very cool. Thank you. Go ahead, Taryn. You step on my storytelling. <laughs> so uh, I'm a fourth generation veteran. My great-grandfather, uh, Papa John, uh, kicked it off in our family in World War I. Uh, both my grandfathers served, uh, one in Army Air Corps, but he was like the light middleweight boxing champion, so he just ran around Army bases getting into boxing ex exhibitions. And then the other grandfather was a career war vet. He uses Montgomery GI Bill uh, to attend co college, Grambling University. Um, all of my grandmother's brothers, or both my grandmothers, all of, all of their brothers, either served in World War II, Korea, or Vietnam. Um, my dad uh, is a Marine Corps uh, veteran, a retired Marine, uh, Mustang 06, Iran. Um, a couple of his brothers are also veterans. Um, and my mom's little brother is also a vet. So for us, it's the family business. Um, I went between, uh, during my childhood, wanting to be a Marine, between wanting architect, that you want to be a Marine, back to something new. What happened, man? Just God bless me, you graduated from the world's greatest school on the planet, the United States Military Academy at West Point. Um, I can get that story another day. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, so I grew up in this area, as just stated, graduate from West Point. Not as good as Okinawa, but I spent my first six months on the Jersey Shore as a deputy tack and assistant basketball coach at our prep school. Um, that was West Point's way of thanking me for a job well done. Um, and then went on to the actual regular army. God knows that was not the regular army, um, but it was good. Uh, ended up deploying uh, with 1st Squadron, 2nd ACR to Iraq in May of 03. Would have been April, but. The Army likes to save money as much as they can, so instead of, instead of deploying on April 28th, I deployed May 2nd. Um, and uh, spent most of the, so I, I, I was a platoonman at the time, um, so I got my, got my platoon over the berm. And my claim to fame with respect to why and how I do what I do now, um, June 28th of 2003 until April 6th or so of uh, 2004. I was, a, I was the squadron fire support officer and primary civil military officer for my squadron, 1st Squadron, 2nd ACR, Royal Eagles. And in that capacity, um, I served as, or let me back up, I stood up our district council and 10 neighborhood council for the Tissi Nissan district in Baghdad. Uh, so those who are unfamiliar uh, with Baghdad or Iraq in general, uh, Tissi Nissan's second largest district in Baghdad. 
1.25 million people as of the November 2003 census, 186 square kilometers. Um, so had that entire governance piece, stood up as a municipality, liaised on their behalf to the CPA, uh, Iraqi federal government once it got stood up, the UN when it was still there, um, to Baghdad City Hall, all the NGOs and whoever else wanted to do whatever. Um, not to stretch this out longer because I could, I've written a book about it. Um, Baghdad was the greatest time of my life. Um, we'll probably get into this later in the conversation, but I found my passion during that period. And as I stated earlier, I was going back and forth on things I wanted to do because I liked a lot of things, like all kids, right? Um, but at the time of the deployment, I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I was, I was creeping on my five-year commitment, and you know, I didn't know if I wanted to stay in the Army or if I wanted to get out and get an MBA and go work on Wall Street or if I wanted to go get an MBA and go play college football at, a, at an Ivy League school. Since, you know, no one, no one on their team was going to go pro, so <laughs> whose spot was I really taking, right? Um, or go out and be an actor or something. I mean, seriously, the, those were like the options in my head. Um, but because of the work I was doing in Iraq, of um, really of building this democracy, of government for the people, by the people, and working every day with Iraqi people, I fell in love with civic activism um, and, and the core aspects of what makes community function. And I said, I want to continue doing this for the rest of my life. But I looked at the Army, and I was like, this is a flash in the pan. right? This is like one of these like, best dream scenarios that when you wake up from, you want to go back to bed and, and live that dream again. But I knew I could never do this and continue to do this in the Army, because at the end of the day, I was a war fighter. I right? was a field artillery officer in a light cab unit. Um, and so I had to make the, uh, the hard decision, because of how our Constitution is structured, um, that I had to get out of the Army. Uh, and I haven't regretted that day since. Uh, I miss the Army every day. I love the Army. Uh, but not one day do I regret the decision to leave the Army and to do what I do now. Great. Thanks. Uh, well, good evening. I I'm the uh, old man of the crowd, as you can tell. Um, and so I'll try to give a little perspective uh, to all of you um, on what you're going to do in the next chapter. I grew up in Wyoming and had the good fortune to escape that place. <laughs> I, can't, I still can't wait to get back. But I miss it, but I wanted to see the world because um, I knew uh, how small Wyoming was. And so by good fortune, um, I got to go to the um, powerhouse football team that beats West Point every year um, at the Naval Academy. <laughs> we, we, did not, we did not beat West Point every year when I was there. No, you um, didn't, because I was there too. <laughs> But I was commissioned in the Marines. Um, I chose to join the Marine Corps because of my roommate. I didn't know anything about the military, um, unlike um, Keegan. Um, I, my family was never in the military. I didn't know anything about the military. I just knew about the service academies because Air Force always beat Wyoming every year in football. <laughs> and my roommate's father had been killed in Beirut in 1983 when they blew up the barracks. And uh, I saw the way that his dad's friends came around and took care of him, and I thought, I want to be part of that club. And so I spent 20 years uh, in the Marine Corps, and by good fortune got to, to fly jets, and um, also be a Ford Air Controller, and um, spent a lot of time in the Middle East and such. You're most interested in the transition, and so I'll talk a little bit about my transition. Um, I spent my entire career in the fleet. Uh, in the operating forces. Uh, I got to command a squadron, take them to come back and bring them home, and then no good deed goes unpunished. And I got sent to the Pentagon. <laughs> so I, I was the, the speechwriter to the, the deputy commandant for aviation and, and realized that the colonels were not having fun, and I thought, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I thought, um, thinking quite highly of myself, you know, I'm going to punch at 20 and change the world. And, and I failed miserably in that. Um, I charged my rent the first month I got out. Um, and stubbornly did not send the resume to any of the defense contractors. I was not going to do that. Um, but over the course of about a year and a half, I kind of had an interim job where I ran the Middle East for an aerospace company. Um, a friend of a friend of a friend um, in those information coffees introduced me to uh, a lady named Elisa Massimino, um, who's the CEO of Human Rights First. And she kept calling about every three or four months and saying, like, hey, Scott, come talk to me again. And then about a year and a half later, she called and said, why don't you apply for this job we just posted for, which is the job I'm in and has been in the last three and a half years. Um, 
I work kind of at the intersection of human rights and national security. Who has heard of human rights first? Anyone? Okay. Well, that's more than average. Uh, <laughs> we get confused with Human Rights Watch. Um, I keep telling them we should have branded as Human Rights Second or Human Rights Last. <laughs> People would know who we are. Um, but, but my work is what I like to call connective tissue between two worlds that speak the same language but don't oftentimes understand each other. And that's the national security world and the human rights world. Um, we work with a group of generals and admirals that have uh, advocated against torture for a number of years. And then we also have uh, a project, a movement, if you will, called Veterans for American Ideals that is, I like to think of as a close cousin to the mission continues. Um, there's a lot of really great veteran organizations out there that advocate for veterans, um, but there's very few um, like Team Rubicon, like the mission continues, and like what we're trying to do with uh, Veterans for American Ideals, where veterans get to advocate for others. Um, that's uncomfortable work. I work with Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and, and those others, and they uh, assume that the military is acting in bad faith in most cases. And I have to explain, no, they're not. They're actually um, quite patriotic um, and fair-minded people. And so that's where I get to, to play um, during those days. Now, what I would tell you, and we'll talk a little bit more about your transition, um, is um, have a, a good sense of what you want to do, um, and then go chase it. Uh, if you just talk to somebody and say, well, I'm not sure what I want to do, but I've got all these skills, um, that's not going to help. Um, but if you have decided, now I'm, I'm going to work at The Mission Continues, um, I used to tell my daughters, who are now grown, um, the sixth time you come around to apply for that job, they'll give you that job. They'll say, get an apron. Um, that's part of the, the transition as well. Um, but you also have to figure out what it is that you want to do before you do that. It could be making money. And I was, I was talking to Topper, uh, to Scott Farr in the back. Um, I made more money on active duty than I do today, including my retirement. I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, you have to think about what, what you want with your life. Um, and so um, that's not to, to say anything other than um, I know a lot of my friends um, that are working for some of the big defense contractors, and it's quite lucrative. Um, it's also soul-crushing, I think. To some <laughs> and so that, that's only food for thought. That is not being critical. Um, I'm, I just say that, um, and especially it's why I was so enamored of what Kevin's doing. Um, because um, at the end of the day, um, I have, I hope, another... 30 good years of contributing something. Um, and besides uh, two young ladies that I brought into this world, my legacy is hopefully that I will have contributed something, whatever it is. Um, and so that's what enamors me in you know, why I get to get up in the morning. Um, if you have that perspective, I think you can, Courtney. Thanks. Really got to step up the storytelling. <laughs> All right, so my name is Lourdes Tiglau, and uh, how many are immigrants here to the United States? Let me just ask that. Not me. Um, <laughs> all right, anyone that's ever like, lived in another country? Okay, quite a few, right? Um, so my story is a little bit of a conglomeration of everyone's. Um, I was actually an immigrant here to the United States back when I was uh, 10 years old is when I came here to the U.S. and I didn't even speak English. It was like I understood it, could speak it, so my first year of life here was kind of rough, a lot of hand gestures. Um, but as most Asian families would be, you know, the, your family, my father basically took us over here to have a better life. Um, but as most Asian families would be, they have your life set up by the time you're 10 years old. <laughs> so for my family, I was supposed to become a lawyer. And that was the path that was set up for me starting from like when I was 10 until I was supposed to graduate from college. So my entire life was set up to be successful in that path, which I did. Got a scholarship for undergrad, got a scholarship for law school. All I had to do was go walk through the steps. I'll get to your soul crushing thing in a second. Um, so I get to about the second year of college, and the more that I learned about becoming an attorney, sorry for the attorneys here, but um, I figured if I was going to be a successful lawyer, and this is just my own, maybe my naive perspective at the time. If I was going to become a lawyer, I have, and a successful lawyer, I have to win cases. To win cases, I may have to compromise my principles depending on who I'm representing. And so for me, I wasn't necessarily prepared to do that. Again, my own naive, perhaps, perception of what the uh, 
the profession is. So I said, there's got to be something else. So my first crisis of conscience was 21 years old. Um, so I pivoted from having a full ride scholarship for undergrad and for law school to looking at the Peace Corps, looking at the military, joining the Air Force. Mind you, no one in my family has ever been in the military. Uh, immigrant. And so when I told my dad that I was going to join the military, he was like, you're throwing your life away. And I said, no, 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 this is just something that I think, you know, I, I want to serve a higher purpose. So even back then, I kind of knew that I wanted to be part of something bigger. So I joined the military, got into the Air Force, and I think I'm the only enlisted person from this panel. So I joined as an enlisted person, um, and I spent 12 years doing medical evacuations. There's the medical evacuations where, you know, I broke my leg, I'd like to go home, and then there's the, I got shot, I'd like to live. I'm on the latter side of that. So I did a couple rounds in Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, etc., etc. Also lived in Okinawa, actually, three and a half years. Um, and so it was, the military was probably the best times of my life at the time, until I got to where I'm at now. Um, and so I felt that every time I woke up, I had purpose, I had something to, to go to, and that I knew exactly what I needed to do whenever the phone call comes up. And so that clarity of purpose is a great driver of your passion. Um, knowing what you're aiming for gets you through the bad days. Now, mind you, not everything was rosy in the military, as most people can probably tell. Um, but the re as for as many deployments, so I said I was, I was in for 12 years. I was overseas for seven of those 12 years, which is unheard of, by the way, in the Air Force. There's like a long-running joke of like the Air Force never leaves their base. So, um, so for me, it was the deployments, for as many as they were, were the things that actually, the deployments were actually what kept me in, in the military. Absolutely loved the life. I loved what I was doing, and I absolutely believed in it. But at the time, by the time 12 years came up, I had to make a decision. Continue on to graduate work or continue in the military. And at the time, education won. So I got out of the military. Um, I've been warned several times by other friends of mine that had already gotten out. It's like, you know, transition's kind of tough. You've got to make sure that you have everything set right before you leave. And so I figured I'll start all of my paperwork and everything a year in advance. So I'm thinking, I'm not going to be a statistic. I'm going to have everything set before I get out. Had everything done, get out, and guess what? Best laid plans, right? So paperwork's not done, medical's somehow lost. Uh, so it was, it was a little bit of a rough transition at that point, but I'm thinking, okay, it's still in good shape. Um, it'll get sorted out. And then when I got out, it was... I went to school trying to, I was on a path now to become a physician since I pivoted from being in law to now medicine. So I'm thinking, I'm going to be a physician to be able to provide pro bono services for veterans. So I'm going, to, I'm going on that path and then I find out that I haven't found that spark that really I had when I was in the military. And day in and day out, I was going through the motions. People thought I was like, I had everything together, but it's really a lot of mental willpower to just go to the next day. So by the time I got, I found Team Rubicon through my friend Clay Hunt. Um, it was a lifesaver for me. It was really discovering Team Rubicon that I found that spark of having that higher purpose, having a new sense of mission. Um, and so one thing that I will impart to you guys um, is that purpose and passion is not the same. They're not. It's not interchangeable. You can have passion and not have purpose. You can have purpose, but maybe not have passion. And so to find that balance between the two is kind of like that magic mixture. But a lot of times what you'll find is that when you find that clarity of purpose, it drives that passion. And that's what's going to fuel you to the rest of that transition point. So I'll leave you with that little nugget because I'm sure they've got questions that they're going to uh, get it to us. Thanks. Um, so clearly, uh, the four of you, I don't think I could have picked a better panel. Like, very commendable experience, and what you're doing now is even, is even more inspiring. I I'm very curious if you could kind of 
in a little bit shorter time and paraphrase, we don't have to go in order, but I'm very curious, your decision to go into the military and the experience there, how did that, whether it's three years, five years, 12 years, how did that shape to what you're currently doing today? So, as I stated earlier, I'll keep it short. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after my five, if I was going to stay in or transition and do something up, something cool, right? Um, the politics thing, the civic activism, and working with the Iraqis to in, in helping them uh, achieve a better life based upon their own vision was what I fell in love with. Um, and so that's what I wanted to continue to do. Um, how that's helped me now, especially being a politician, when, when I say that, um, I, I work on both the activism and the policy writing side. So I've done that for um, presidential, gubernatorial, senatorial, congressional candidates, and so forth. Um, is that a lot of the melee and the reason why people don't like politics is why I'm involved, right? I hate politics. That's why I'm involved in politics. Um, because change begins with someone. It has to begin with someone. I said to myself, I may, be the, I may as well be that someone. And one of the primary lessons I learned over in, uh, in Baghdad, which I didn't really realize I'd learned until 2014, is that every action and inaction that I took had a, had a life-changing effect on over a million people, right? Anything I did or didn't, anything I did or did not do, meant people's lives, literally, right? Um, if I made the wrong decision, if I befriended the wrong person, if I did this or did that, people could have died, right? And so I take that that aspect of what I do seriously, um, realizing that uh, life changing life changing aspects occur on some of the things that, that we all do, that I do, with, with respect to um, writing policy and, and, and crafting and advising policy towards, towards our leaders. And sadly, um, our leaders here don't understand that piece. And that, that's an aspect of, uh, a major aspect of, of what I bring towards what I do. As I mentioned in my intro, because my parents were born in Poland and came here for a better life, so that's what drove me to join the military and my sense of service. So after my service was done in the Marine Corps and I moved here from San Diego, I looked at ways to get involved. And the first way I got involved was with the Team Red, White, Blue. So I actually heard about that through Kevin and Courtney. And so I got involved with that, and that's how I heard about the Mission Continues. And once I heard um, what their mission was and what they were doing, going to these areas and, the, and serving these communities where they need the most help, um, Southeast DC here, for example, and just having another sense of purpose and seeing the work that I was doing was having an effect not only on me personally, but other veterans. So having that drive and that desire to serve, but also the impact it was having on the community. Seeing some of these kids who come from single family homes whose parent may be in jail or whatever the case may be, Spending an afternoon with them and teaching them how to use a hammer, how to use a, a drill, just to, to build a garden. That's how we got started at this one school, is a garden of dreams. Um, just seeing the impact it had, that mentoring aspect that I missed from the Marine Corps, um, just had such an impact on me that I continued to volunteer at Mission Continues, which ultimately led to having a job at Mission Continues. How many in the crowd are veterans or active duty? I, I figured most are. Um, I, I think I joined probably. Uh, for the same reasons that, that many of you did. Um, we want to think well of ourselves. Um, there's, a, there's a Henry Fleming, I think, in all of us. He was the main character in Red Band of Courage, you know, that, that wants to prove himself worthy and brave. I think that underlies a lot of the reasons that we joined the military. Um, after I joined, um, probably the biggest thing I took away is that it's not about you. You've heard about the person that works his own bolt, you know, that, that expression. Um, that rings true. And it's not always the case in the civilian world, uh, I found out. Um, but that's not okay. Sure not. And that's probably um, the biggest thing that I took with me, um, especially in this town um, where there's a lot of people that are working their own bolt. Um, you know, I mean, Alex P. Keating, I know I'm dating myself now. How many people are in the family ties? You know, I'm old. Man. Like all those, all those guys that were Alex P. Keating in your high school class, they all came here. <laughs> Um, and I think the one thing that, that I've learned since I've gotten out is that that ethos, that, I mean, truly, that the, well, my drill instructor, 
uh, that some staff at CEOs taught me um, is what carries through. Yeah, so for me it was um, it was a little bit of a different, uh, I think, perspective being in the medical uh, in the medical side from in the military. So everyone seems to have been more on the you know, spear tip, and I was more on the receiving end a lot of times of um, whenever we were out deployed. And I think that one of the things that I really appreciated in my military career is understanding that fine line of knowing what our mission is, but also knowing what's right, which I appreciate what you guys do with human rights first. Um, on that note, as when I got out of the military, um, I remember how, I always went back and reflected on that passion and drive that I had for what I was doing, that absolute belief in what I was doing was right, because my job was to save lives, period. And so for me, I wanted to find whatever job that was, whatever position that was, that was going to give me that absolute passion and belief. And I definitely tried several different jobs. I went straight into hospital jobs just because it was an easy transition being in the medical field. I went to do consultancy. Uh, yeah. I, I, I was not so good at that. Um, specifically on government TV's writing. Um, so I had to. I literally, I had to ask someone actually um, how to write that, and they said, you know, take out your soul and start writing. So, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so, so, but going back to the point, it's, it's more of just knowing that whatever job it was that I was going to look for, it had to, it had to be something that I absolutely believed in, because otherwise, um, I would just be either A, following the money, or B, following aimlessly until I hopefully stumbled onto something. So for me, I think it, it's, it's having that clarity of purpose, which actually it wasn't even in the military, it was earlier on in my, in my life that I learned that. The clarity of purpose really helped drive me and focus me to the kind of job that I probably should have, which the, the unifying thread within my life is actually a life of service. Um, even before I went to the military, and I would say that that's probably one of the big nuggets that I'll give to you guys is look back on your life, look at the things that you enjoy doing even when you're, it's not your job, um, and find a unifying thread, because that's really where you're going to find some of your passions. Um, so I'm going to go a little, I have about eight questions, we're, we're not going to get through all, but I want to go a little, I'll script what you just said, Laura, so find something you believe. So let's say in a perfect world, you're transitioning out of the military and you're like, I know what I want to do. I have three or four options. How about conversely, I'm looking for some kind of tactical, tangible advice. How do you, say you know what you want to do, but how do you know if you're going to believe in that company that's about to hire you? Like, are there, I'm a big component of like, here are questions you should ask them, here are red flags you should look for, and, and you've all clearly hopped around a little bit. This is it, this isn't it. I like this boss, I'm, I'm soul crushing. So how do you know if, if this is something you're going to believe in? Because it's, it's a marriage. It's a two-way street. They're interviewing you. You're interviewing them. So any, yeah. any, any advice or questions you would ask or red flags you look for? I got one. Best, best piece of advice I got. It was while I was in the Marine Corps. Um, I was a captain. Um, and uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Whistler, um, who went on to be a three-star, um, I asked him for advice for my next assignment. I didn't want to go back to the squadron um, initially. I wanted to experience something else. And uh, he said, go work for Paula Faber, who was a colonel at the time and was the commander of the 22nd Mew, um, and then retired as a uh, two-star. He was the head of Marine Special Operations Command. Um, he said, I don't care what you do. If you're digging ditches, he is the Vince Lombardi of the Marine Corps. Go find somebody you want to work for. That's the guy you want to work for. Um, and so if you find somebody that you want to work for, um, jump on their ship, and if it means uh, pouring coffee for them. Um, little known story that you guys might know, um, Roger Goodell, um, and, again, I, I know he, he is a controversial figure today, but do you guys know how he got where he is? He was Pete Rozelle's driver, and wrote him a, a letter every year and said, I want to work for the NFL. And when Pete Rozelle retired from the NFL, pulled out of his drawer every single letter that Roger Goodell wrote to him. Uh, good story. Uh, now, I'm not sure the, the subject of the story are necessarily the best, but I would say, you know, go find somebody you want to work for. Mm -hmm. Another antidote or one other piece of advice? Go. 
you know, first I'd say everyone's path is different, right? With me being politics, people always ask, did you read that person's book, that, that person's book? And no, I haven't. Um, I've read one book. But um, because how we achieve our goals is, is different for everyone else. What I'd say, first you have to ask yourself, is the means of you making money, does that equate to your passion? If it does, then right, then you, you need to be a little tactical about where, where you're looking to work. Uh, because you want to wake up every morning happy. Right? When I moved back home back in 2005, you know, I, I dove, I dove headfirst into politics, uh, but I wasn't getting paid to do what I was doing. But I went and got myself a, a defense contracting job because uh, I wanted to still be in touch with the community, and I was doing great things. But as time went on and transition and the job, uh, it got to a point to where I was waking up and I was not happy. But I was going to work every day, pissed, right? I was loving what I was doing that wasn't paying me, but I was mad every day going to work for what was paying me and staring at the, staring at the clock to, to when it got to 3 o'clock so I could rush out and get out of there. And God blessed me to get laid off in 2013. Um, best thing that ever happened. Second best thing that ever happened. Maybe third. But anyway, so, um, right, so if, if your salary and your passion equate with one another, they correlate, then yeah, um, I, I like the, you know, find who you want to work for, or if it's that field, because there's going to be a lot of trial and error, right? Not, not too many people get a touchdown. Exactly. Um, not everyone gets a touchdown on the first go, right? You're going to get hit a lot, you're going to get tackled, but eventually you keep persevering and stay true to yourself. Stay true to yourself, um, because you could, I could have given up a long time ago and be doing something and whatever, but I said, no, I got to stay true. I'd rather be poor and happy than, uh, than have a whole lot of money and be miserable every freaking day. So I'll go back to what I said just a little bit ago, which is, um, you know, look back first, figure out what kind of job it is that, or what kind of profession or career you, you should be having, which is, you know, a lot of that is actually found within your past because you're usually drawn to be doing, to do activities that uh, coincides with what uh, aligns with your character. And then, I, I definitely echo what they're saying of uh, working for someone that you admire. But in my case, I didn't start off with Team Rubicon, you know, right off the bat, I'm, I'm a staff member. I was actually a volunteer for six years. So I was volunteering in disaster response for six years and putting in at least 20 hours of my time a week as a volunteer leader. And this is over six years. And I felt just as strongly after those six years as I did the first year I was there. And so when you think about those six years and the amount of energy, passion, um, emotion, and tears, and sometimes blood, we're disasters. Um, <laughs> when you find yourself believing in that company at the same, same level as when you did the first time, that's a company you want to work for. So when there was an opportunity to actually be able to be part of that organization, absolutely jumped on it. Now, quick little point. I applied for a particular position and I got turned down. I got turned down because they wanted me to apply for another position. So never think that just because you got turned down doesn't mean they don't want you. They probably think they'll see you in another position. But even if you do get turned down, make sure to always say in your letter, tactical, point number two, say in your letter, I would be abs especially if you really want to work for this company, I would be absolutely happy to lend my services, volunteer, and still be part of the organization even as not a staff member. And this gives them a, an inkling of your, not just your loyalty, but your passion for that organization. And it will stick. So some threads that I'm hearing from all of you is, I think it's relationships and people. Uh, and a mix with a little bit of tenacity. And, and whether it's taking that, that lower level job because you found somebody, or, or being polite and, and pleasant and continue to build your connections. So I'm curious in this 2017 world of the phone and, and even the way I've pretty much met all of you aside from you, Joanna, what are some ways, whether it's uh, veterans, college students, because I, you know, I see it all. College students get stuck in the, what I talked about earlier is they get stuck on just a two-page resume and that's the only way they know how to communicate. So what are some ways that you've found uh, to build connections? Offline, online, because I feel like everybody's up here because of you knew somebody 
and you've made connections and you've paid it forward. So could you speak to that a little bit? So for me, the realization of like, oh my gosh, I could do anything I want to do and I got the Marine Corps was great, but it was also terrifying at the same time. It's like, how do you figure this out, right? So I was fortunate enough to go through a program at Deloitte and they had you list out what's most important to you as we've kind of addressed around the panel. Is it money? Is it flexibility? Is it job satisfaction? What is it? So after I listed some of those out, um, I was able to kind of look back, all right, all right, this is what's important to me. It's still making a difference, right? And once I realized that the first job I got in the military probably wasn't going to be the job I was going to stay with, and once I shifted my mindset of not viewing that as failure, but using that as like a stepping stone to get to what I wanted, then like it was like a light bulb went off, and I was like, wow, I could do kind of anything I really want to do. So that's how I used my experience at Oracle, right? Um, I was fortunate enough to stand up our veteran um, employee network at Oracle and got some connections through there. And through knowing people and just talking about my passions, I was able to volunteer with Mission Continues, like I said, which ultimately gave me a job at Mission Continues. So I would say, if you don't know what you want to do, find what your passion is, as, as we have all kind of addressed, and just start volunteering. And you never know who you're going to meet through the networks of just volunteering. Like, we have corporate sponsors for a lot of our platoons from, like, Boeing, BAE, CarMax, etc. And a lot of them come out to our events. And you, you may not know who you're working next to. It could be the VP of HR, which has happened. And I've seen people, be like, at the end of the day, be like, all right, here's my card. If you're looking for a job, let me know, type thing. So it's... Um, use your network, and if you don't know, look up somebody on LinkedIn who you think has your dream job. And just send them a message, or see if you know somebody who knows somebody. Um, just make that initial, that effort and say, hey, I noticed you've done this. Can you help me connect? This is what I want to do. And don't be afraid to ask. Put yourself out there. Be vulnerable. I mean, it's scary, um, but that's the only way that you're going to grow as a person, but then ultimately grow and, and hopefully get the job that you want, or make those connections to get you the job that you want. Yeah, the caveat on that. One of the lessons I learned that it took me a long time to learn because those in the military were accustomed to getting promoted um, because of our ability to perform or to excel at the next level, right? Our potential, right? And so we, we all, in our mind, we're like, okay, I've worked hard and therefore I should get to the next step, right? And that used to always be an obstacle for me in the civilian world because in the civilian world, if you don't speak up and advocate for yourself, you're going to get punked. And you will see people lesser than you rising, and you sit there asking yourself, why is that knucklehead now a step or two above me when I've been the one doing all the real work and I'm the one with all the great ideas? Well, it's because you didn't allow the people making those decisions for the knuckleheads to get above you to let them know that you actually are the brain trust or the muscle behind all these cool things that they think is cool, right? So one of the lessons I had to learn and one of the lessons that... Uh, a lot of uh, former, you know, I guess veterans, right? Veterans need to do is advocate for yourself. You know, you're doing good work. You know, there, there are humble ways that you can go up to, you know, the VP, the senior VP, the CEO, depending on how big the company is. Say, you know, sir, ma'am, you know, my name's X. I've been doing this for X number of years. I love it here. Boom, boom, boom. I'm looking for some challenges, or can we grab coffee? And a lot of these folks, because it's almost like the supermodel syndrome. They're so they're seen, you know, they're, they're deemed to be so big and powerful that sure. folks in, in like in our generation are a little timid to go approach them, right? So they're always standing alone and only talking to their actual peers, which at that level is not that large of a group. And so they love when people in our generation and millennials too. Um, <laughs> sorry. When when they love it when 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 we approach them because mentorship is a direct action. And they want to see, see us rise, because just like a parent, they're like, okay, now that's my legacy. I can groom that person. So, you know, be able to step out of your comfort zone and, and make the ask. Um, again, like I said, that was, that was something that was hard for me. Um, I've, I've been in that position to where, you know, I did a lot of work, did a lot of really good work, and didn't, wasn't able to uh, reap the rewards for it. And I'm learning that lesson. I think that's what every vet needs to do. I'll just make one caveat to that. Um, it's hard to ask. Um, the approach is really important. Um, it's not transactional. And so I think uh, if the approach is, could I get your advice, it's well received. Mm -hmm. If it's, could you help me, then that's kind of off-putting. Um, are they the same thing? I, I, just about. But if you were just to say, can I get your advice on this? Um, uh, even the most 
selfish little person would tend to say, well, he flattered me, he wants my voice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, definitely echoing the, the mentorship aspect, um, but the mentorship aspect as well as like putting yourself out there as far as volunteering for different organizations that you might want to be part of um, in the future. Um, one other thing to just kind of remember too is that there are certain aspects probably of yourself that you might not have even discovered. So you don't ever think that the culmination of who you are is just what you've experienced in your military career. A lot of times there is certain aspects, the reason that you're successful in your military career is not because of the, the tactical skills that you have, but it's the soft skills, the things that's not in your resume. And so I would say spend time in your self-discovery first in order to figure out those other skill sets and, um, and other attributes of yourself that uh, probably would be well suited for a particular career and then start reaching out to those, um, to those organizations and those people for mentorship. Now, one side note on that, when you do, when you do that self-reflection, don't do it just by yourself because you're biased. Make sure to include people that you trust, including one that you would want to mentor, because they'll give you an objective opinion, hopefully. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, you know, one of the phrases in the book that I wrote is, is you can't figure out what you like to do until you, I was playing the music. Uh, you can't figure out what you like to do until you figure out what you don't like to do. And I often uh, challenge people to do a 30-day yes challenge. Say yes to everything, and within 30 days you'll start to figure out who you like, who you don't like, the volunteer things you like, you don't like, the assignments you've taken or the projects you've taken on. And, uh, and I think it's what everybody said, it's this self-discovery and constant kind of pushing your comfort zone. Um, I want you guys to kind of start thinking of a few questions that you may have for the panelists. Um, and the last thing that I'll turn over to you guys, I have two questions I want to ask. I'm trying to think what would be the best one. Um, I'm going to go with this because this is the one that I always use at the end of my fireside chats, is if you could go back to, uh, let's say, your 22, 21-year-old self, uh, what, would you go, what would you go tell them? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, let me, well, the real answer has nothing to do with this conversation. Uh, I don't think, you know, if I'm looking at my 21, 22 year old self, I'm at West Point still. It says on. It's on. You know, yeah, if I'm looking at my 21, 22 year old self, I'm still at West Point. Um, I'm a sophomore slash junior. Um, I don't think, I don't think I would tell myself anything um, because, and I say this only because I like where I am now. So just living right? the moment. Right, because we are the we are the product of all the good and the bad that occurred in our life, right? So yeah, I'd like to say to myself, yeah, go hit the weight room <laughs> real hard, um, and put on, you know, and, and do freaking eat protein like it's your life, and then go see a football coach. Right? But then that had changed my life, right? Or I'd, I'd like to say, you know, study. Because I did not study, except for, for major tests. God bless being really, really smart, right? But then that would change my class rank, and then I wouldn't have got forced into field artillery, and I would have got only had three choices and installations to go to, which would have changed my whole life, and I would have had the cool Iraq experience, right? Um, so, no, you know, professionally, not a thing. Fun things, yeah, yeah. But no, no, I would not. No, nothing. I love it. <laughs> um, I would actually cheer my twenty-one years, my twenty-one year old self on uh, more than anything, because changing your entire, pivoting your literally your entire career from one path to another. Number one is life changing, but number two takes some courage. Pardon the it takes some balls, really. Um, because when you've been working, you know, seven, eight, ten years towards a particular goal back then as a kid, um, and then 
you ultimately make that conscious decision to say, this is not for me, even though I've been spent seven, eight years of my life trying to get here, that takes some courage to change after you've invested this much time, effort, and money, etc., to, to get to a particular point. But I would say, be bold in your decisions. and Don't be afraid to change your path. I literally have taken, like every crucial point in time in my life, I literally changed like 180 degrees from law to medicine, from medicine to what I'm doing now. Totally polar opposites of each other. Um, to anyone else looking at my resume, they're probably gonna think, you have no idea what the hell you're doing, because you're all over the place. However, uh, an executive coach, by the way, if you're able to and you're in a program that allows, that provides it, get an executive to get an executive coach, they're great. Um, an executive coach actually told me that, because that was my fear, it's like I had no idea what the heck I was doing, and this is when I was doing my MBA. So what she told me was that every part and everything that I did in my life was just a step to accumulate the tools and the skill sets to get to the career that I should have. Mm -hmm. And that has been probably one of the most profound things that I've ever heard, which made me feel a little bit better about all the decisions, good or bad, um, throughout my life. Uh, I'll be quick. Um, has anyone read Robert Corham's book uh, on John Boyd? I'm friends with his friends. And so uh, he used to constantly tell um, his young officers, um, seek to do something, don't seek to be someone. Uh, that's good advice. Yeah. For me, I look back at where I was at 21, I knew what I wanted to do. I just commissioned in the Marine Corps, was ready to go, so I tend to go a few more years ahead, I guess. And when I was getting out, it's, don't be afraid of the unknown. I mean, it's scary, and that's, because that was the biggest thing for me. It's like, you can do anything you want to do, and it's so terrifying, but like, and then just trust trust your gut and trust that you're where you're supposed to be in that moment and use your past experiences to kind of move you forward to what you want to do would be, would be my advice. Uh, all great stuff and, and I know we didn't get a chance to really deep dive into what each of you are doing because you're all doing very incredible work and I would really encourage you to, uh, after we're done here with the Q&A, to connect with them um, and I, would, I wish we had more time to talk about it. But I'd like to turn over to, to you guys. What would you like to ask any, any of the panelists? Hey, thanks. Uh, Justin Goldman. Uh, you had a nice line that talked about knowing your mission, but also knowing what's right. Can you talk about it? Did you have periods where you struggled with that? You had to wrestle with that? Kind of what was your mindset and how you approached that? Uh, you're good. You're good. Yeah? Okay. Um, so, depending on which mission we're talking about, right? There's the organizational mission, and then there's your personal mission. So, I would say that your mission should always be what's right. You're hoping that your personal moral compass is driving you to do the right things behaviorally. But if you're talking about organ, so I have to parse that out a little bit. Sorry, maybe some of that legal things actually stuck with me. Um, <laughs> but um, if you're talking about organizational mission, that actually is really important because there are some organizations that may be more focused to a certain thing that is not aligned with your own moral compass. And so when I say do what's right, despite what the organization, maybe they don't know that it's not right. Maybe no one has brought that up because it's so like below the level that they're making decisions on, or they don't see the ramifications, second, third order effects of certain decisions. So I would say, one, have a moral compass no matter what, what it is that you're doing, because that's gonna keep pointing you and making sure that you're able to sleep at night and wake up in the morning being glad that you're doing what you're doing. But then, Make sure that you are um, emulating that and and, and um, representing that in your in your work. And so when I say you know your organizational mission has to be aligned with you, or vice versa, I guess. Um, make sure that it is your responsibility as well to make sure that you you are making your your organization as good as they can be by pointing out what's right. Now, also be humble if you're actually wrong, but you think you're right. But just just make sure that your moral compass is always like, pointing true north. Other questions? <laughs> let, me, let me ask the, the audience something. Um, 
Who's in transition now? All right. Who's got a burning question about their particular specific instance right now? Like you're literally struggling with it. Go. My name is Corey. There's a question. I have one week left in active duty in the Army, and I'm going back to school. So what was the biggest unforeseen challenge that you had when you're coming out of, out of the military and going into the civilian life? I don't know if it was unforeseen, but for me, given my background, right? So I have master's and bachelor's in criminal justice. I was a military police officer. So looking forward, the next step would have been federal law enforcement. So that's initially what I had done. I applied for the State Department, NCIS, FBI, OPM, all these agencies, and got offers for, for most of them. And it took me a little bit to understand I got out of the Marine Corps for these reasons, and if I jumped into a job like this, it's exactly the reasons why I got out of the military. So for me, it was figuring out what the heck I wanted to do with my life. Um, and then just being, like I said, vulnerable and taking that chance. And I just was, I was at a job conference and an Oracle recruiter came up to me and said, hey, we have your resume. Can you use 10 minutes of your time? And I was like, I don't know anything about computers or tech, but sure. And so like I gave it a shot. And like after talking with one of the guys, um, he had been a reservist, but also had been an Oracle. And he kind of outlined some of the stuff I'd done in the military and how it would equate to what I'd be doing at Oracle. And that's also another like aha moment I had where I was like, oh yeah, like I did investigations, getting to the root of whatever happened, right? I'd be doing that at Oracle, working with customers, figuring out why they want to move to a new platform or a new project management thing. Um, I'd be demonstrating our product. I did that briefing general officers, et cetera. So um, just being able to translate some of my experiences. I think that was harder for me than I thought it was going to be. I thought I had a good grasp on it, but I really didn't. And then also, like I said, not viewing the first job I had as, as failure, but just being willing to kind of take that chance and be vulnerable. I thought I was ready for that, but I wasn't. And it wasn't until a few key people kind of pointed that out to me and gave me some sound advice that I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I could totally do this. And gave me the confidence to, to make that leap um, to Oracle, yeah. Yeah, it was weird for me. I was slightly scared. Not really, really scared, but slightly scared because I grew up in the Marine Corps, so I didn't—I had no idea what the civilian life was really like. I mean, though I lived in the suburbs um, from middle school and high school, I still had my ID card. If I played basketball with the Quantico, right, and the commissary with the PX, you know, so that was my world. Um, and all of a sudden, when I got to, you know, my ETS leave, like the day after my ETS leave, I was like, "This is real," because um, you know how I function, you know. Used to if I was getting you know, if I was sick right going down to the to the to the clinic you know and hollering at my homeboy who's the PA you know toss me some Motrin and I keep on walking you can't do that in the civilian world was, you know fortunately my parents were around and so when it came to like me buying my condo they helped made sure I didn't get bamboozled by all those real estate people and other nonsense but you know I think about six or seven years ago uh, more to your point. I really realized that I was never going to fully acclimate into the civilian world. And that's okay, right? You're going to hear a lot of people tell you that, you know, that Army life, that was your other life, and now you're... It's like, no, because we're, we're, you're, you're, you're a whole, right? All the parts that make up you, preschool, elementary school, middle high school, college, if you went to college, whatever you did, your job, your, your military service, that all makes who you are, and you can't take that, take that off and away from you. Yeah, you put the uniform in the closet or give it to uh, to the you know the store outside the front gate like I did, get a little cash. But you can't take you can't take that away from yourself because it's part of who you are, right? Hopefully, everyone had a at least fifty one percent positive experience during their service, right? And so that's that helps make you great as to who you are. And so I say embrace it, right? That doesn't mean that you go around touting it everywhere you go. I'm an army. Uh, but when people ask, like, yeah, I, I, I loved it. It made me who I am. It made me great who I am. Um, because eventually, uh, when it comes, eventually they're going to need a leader, right? And that's when you're going to be able to step up, whether it's directly or indirectly, and people are going to look at you like, you know, yeah, that guy is a leader. Oh, he was in the Army. That makes sense. And then positive things will start happening. But, yeah, don't, yeah, don't worry. It's going to be a little scary, but, hey, that's life, right? We've been scared before. Um, I 
know if I'd say it's an unforeseen challenge, but maybe it's something that I kind of realized even early on. Um, when I was in the military, I always had like a part-time job working in a civilian hospital. Um, and the reason for that was I didn't believe that the military knew everything. And so I, think, I felt that if I knew a little bit about the civilian hospitals knew, and what the military knew, I could take best practices from both and then be a better clinician. And so I did that throughout my entire career. Uh, maybe a little crazy doing it, but I did. So in that aspect, I kind of kept one part of my civilian self always like, in tow. And so I would say that for people who are still in, make sure that you don't lose sight of who you were before the military. You were not born in the military. You were, whatever your name is, um, before you raised your right hand. Uh, and so make sure you don't lose sight of that. Because that is you at your core. The military just helps to elevate you, to give out those the best um, characteristics and behaviors and actions, and bringing that out and making you a better version of you. But you, you were not born a military person, and never lose sight of that. And I think a lot of people do when they get indoctrinated for so many years, and that they don't know how to work on the outside because they totally lose track of who they were as a civilian. And I think that that is sometimes a mistake. I'm absolutely proud and, pro and I felt it was a privilege to actually serve in the military. Um, but I also know that the world doesn't revolve just within the military. And I think remembering that while you're serving and after you serve um, is an important point. Any other questions tonight? Okay, on, on that note, um, I'd like to thank Lourdes, Scott, Taryn, Joanna. Thank you guys so much. Everybody in the audience, thank you for coming out and, and all the veterans and active military. Thank you so much for your service.